0: You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. ...so that you can follow along with us as we walk through these verses. The Apostle Paul writes, I, therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, encourage you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. God, as we transition this morning from the lofty heights of the first three chapters of Ephesians, and we begin to bring all of those spiritual blessings that belong to us in the heavenly places down to earth and we begin to discover together what it actually means to live in light of them what it actually means to be in christ right where you've placed us i pray that you will help us connect the dots help us to see how your victory in christ over our sin over the powers of darkness and over the world, is intended to change how we live as participants in it. God, we ask that your spirit would lead, guide, and direct our time together in your word today toward that end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the word therefore connects the first and second halves of the letter of Ephesians. It's a reminder, really, that God's victory over sin and Satan in the world and our participation in that victory as those who have been placed in Christ by faith has implications for our everyday lives, which Paul is going to spell out over the course of the next three chapters and as Paul writes here at the very beginning of the second half of the letter you and I have been called by God we've been called according to what he wrote in the first three chapters out of a life characterized by trespasses and sins and called into a life now characterized by walking or living in good works. We've been called out of enslavement to the powers of darkness and called into a new identity and a new freedom in Christ, much as the ancient Israelites were called out of slavery in Egypt and into a new relationship with Yahweh. You and I have been called out of being children of wrath, and we've been called into being children of the Father. And this calling is a calling that applies to every single one of us if we are Christians. And as Paul indicates in verse 1, there is a way of life that fits with this Calling. Once again, Paul reminds us that he is a prisoner in the Lord. This is where Paul's missionary calling had taken him. Where has God placed you right now? Think about the family relationships that you have the people who live around you, the people you work with, the places you shop, the restaurants you like to frequent, the community that you and I call home right here and right now. The Lord Jesus is inviting you and I to come and to learn from him what it means to live every Single part of our lives in a way that befits or in a way that flows from the calling to which you and I have been called. Who you are in Christ, who I am in Christ is the primary defining characteristic of our lives. That's what Paul is getting at through the word therefore and walking into all of these practical applications and implications that will populate the second half of this letter. All of this means that God intends everything in your life And everything in my life to find its proper place in terms of who you and I are in Christ. Look, we're going to come back to this implication over and over again in the second half of Ephesians. So I want to be upfront about it. The Lord Jesus will not let us get away with a salvation that only has implications for the afterlife, but not the particular lives you and I are living right here and right now. There is no such thing. Eternal life doesn't begin when you die. It begins now. And the Apostle Paul in the second half of the letter is calling us to live into that. Now, how do you and I discover all of these various everyday implications? In verse 1, Paul writes, I urge you. Now, I love what these words communicate. This is the language of relationship. This is the language of invitation. This is the kind of pastoral instruction that's not given from the pulpit, but that's given sitting across from someone. The kind of language that's an invitation that essentially says, let's walk forward together and let's talk about what it really means to be an everyday disciple of the Lord Jesus. You see, what you and I need to understand is that without the kinds of relationships like that, the kinds of relationships where we are face-to-face with one another, the kinds of relationships where truth gets pressed into everyday life. Without the kinds of relationships where it gets applied to messy marriages and messy conflicts in the church and messy families where parents and children always seem to be at odds, messy workplaces and messy cultural dilemmas, chances are without the kinds of relationships where you and I are asking and answering the so what questions, we will never actually mature into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Truth from the pulpit is always, by the nature of the thing, a generally communicated message. In order to get truth into your life, you actually need to sit down with someone or several someones and say, okay, let's drill down. Let's figure out together where the dots connect. Do you and I have these kinds of relationships in our church? Are you and I working together to take the truth and to press it down into everyday life, to ask and answer together the actual questions that involve our marriages and our parenting and our workplaces and our finances and how all of those things relate to what it means to be in Christ. Our faith requires this. Being a follower of Jesus requires this. If you and I are going to be faithful to God's calling on our lives. Otherwise, truth just stays up here. Look, you and I may not be prisoners in the Lord as Paul was. But we are called. Every one of us into a life of trust and obedience in response to all that God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. A life ultimately that will inevitably mean following Jesus all the way to the cross. You and I are called to live out our faith, to walk it out. Wherever we are, which essentially will come to fruition in our lives as we die to ourselves. Now, the four words that Paul uses in verse 2 to describe a way of life that fits with God's calling on our lives are... Anything, if not surprising. These four words may not be the first four words that come to our minds when we think about what it means for the resurrection power of Christ to be at work in a person or a people, but these four words are the first four words that come into Paul's mind when he thinks about what it means for the resurrection Christ to be at work in a people. And this is incredibly important. These four words, humility, gentleness, patience, and long-suffering love. These are the first four things that Paul mentions in terms of the actual practical living, outworking of the resurrection power of Christ at work in our hearts and in our lives. In other words, if you and I are living in a way that actually fits with God's calling on our lives, if we're actively asking the Lord Jesus to take up permanent residence in the home of our hearts, which if you'll remember we talked about just two Sundays ago, then it is our character. And it is more specifically the ways that we relate to those around us that will be the primary indicator that we are actually being transformed from the inside out by the power of the risen Christ. Humility. It is those die to self-centeredness, who are learning to live consistent with God's calling on their lives, those who give up self-importance and honor and personal accolades, those who come to value others as more important than themselves. These are the ones in whom the Spirit of Christ, our humble servant king, is working. You know, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, humility was not seen as a virtue. The word meant something like crushed or abased and it was associated with failure and with shame. Humbling oneself before an equal or someone of lesser value or station in life was completely unheard of. In fact, it was taken for granted that those to whom honor was due would actually seek out the honor that was due to them. This is why Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2 about how the Lord Jesus conducted himself were not only revolutionary in the ancient world, but continued to be revolutionary in ours. Listen to what Paul says. but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The one to whom all honor was rightly due, did not seek the honor that was due to him. That's what Paul says. That's what Paul means when he says that Jesus did not consider his divine nature something to be grasped, but instead exchanged it and took upon himself the form of a servant, emptying himself, of his prerogatives and his right to honor and to worship. He lowered himself all the way to the cross in order to save us. So that now in the kingdom of God, greatness is now seen in humble service. Greatness is now seen among those who lower themselves in order to lift others up. Gentleness. Paul says that if we're walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, it will look like all humility and it will look like gentleness. It is those who (coughs) die to harshness who are learning to live consistent with the calling of God on their lives. Those who give up trying to control others through force or threat and who instead begin to deal gently with them. Now, I have realized, as I have reflected on this passage this week, that I often speak pretty harshly to my wife and to my girls. And I wonder if that's a problem that other men in our church have. I would say that it's, probably a problem that many men have as one author says becoming gentle means seeing our spouses and our children as if they were marked fragile handled with care as the Holy Spirit produces this fruit in us, which is what gentleness is by the way, it is a fruit of the Spirit's presence and power at work in our lives, you and I will become less controlling and more nurturing. We will will become less rough and more tender. Even when we've been wronged, or when we're dealing with someone who has done wrong. Can you imagine what it would be like to be part of such a community? The kind of community where we can all drop our defenses and we can expose the very worst part of ourselves to one another, knowing full well that the deepest and darkest struggles of our hearts, the most significant questions, doubts, fears, and challenges we face are going to be handled with care and with compassion. You do realize that's how Jesus treats us. we're going to follow in his footsteps. If we're going to be the kind of people where the evidence of his resurrection power is present, then we're going to be a people becoming more humble and more gentle. Paul says with all humility and gentleness, It is those who die to the tyranny of their own agendas who are living, who are learning to live consistent with the calling of God upon their lives. Now this word is my favorite word out of the four. The word conveys the idea of a largeness of soul. So the question is, do you have a large soul or a narrow soul? And look, this whole idea of patience doesn't have so much to do with our ability or inability to sit at a red light and wait patiently for it to change or to wait patiently in the drive-thru line for our turn to pay and receive our food. Look, while having the capacity to do those things is important, patience as a fruit of the Spirit's work in our lives, has more to do with the largeness of soul that gives people room and time to mature and grow and develop. As the people of God, you and I need a largeness of soul toward one another as we grow and as we mature together we have to recognize that we are a diverse body of believers made up of senior saints who have been walking with Jesus for decades and freshly minted followers of Christ who have been walking with Jesus sometimes for months sometimes for weeks and sometimes for days. Can you imagine what it would be like to be part of a large-souled community where all of us, senior saint and newly minted follower of Christ, are all walking hand-in-hand toward maturity, giving one another the grace to fall and fail and learn and grow along the way. Now I'm not talking about condoning or tolerating blatant sin. What I am talking about is becoming the kind of people where we walk together hand-in-hand, heart-in-heart, and according to the resurrection power of Christ, recognizing that we've all got a long, 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 long way to go. The kind of community where we are quick to give grace Because as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, it has been lavished upon us. My goodness, it has been poured upon us in such a capacity that it ought to just flow out of us. If the resurrection power of Christ is at work in us, it will. with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. It is those who die to their own rights, who are learning to live consistent with the calling of God upon their lives. Look, here's plain and simple truth. This is what Paul's saying. We are called to put up with one another in love, and often we have to do just that. (laughs) This means recognizing, first of all, that every one of us is a burden and a pain sometimes. first step toward real healing is recognizing that you yourself are. The same goes for me. Love is choosing the relationships we have with one another anyway. We have a tendency to think that love will be easy. We do. Too many people walk away from marriages that are hard because they just assume that love should be easy. After all, finding your soulmate should make life a breeze from here on out. Love's not easy. The Bible teaches us, in fact, exact opposite. Love always involves a cross. Love always involves dying. And this is exactly what we must do if we would become humble, gentle, patient, loving followers of Christ. You see, you and I don't come at these things directly. We don't We don't somehow become more humble. We don't somehow become more gentle or more patient or or more loving by trying to become these things. The Bible's clear. These things are a fruit of the Spirit's work in our lives. You and I, we come at these things through recognizing that Christ gives us all kinds of everyday opportunities to die to self-centeredness, to die to harshness, to die to our agendas, to die to our rights, and to trust him. To help us walk in humility, gentleness, patience, and love. How many of us came face-to-face with our self centeredness this past week? Opportunity to die. How many of us came face to face with our tendency to be harsh with others this past week? Opportunity to die. How many of us came face to face with our tendency? To be impatient with others this past week. Opportunity to die. How many of us decided this past week that we were done putting up with a fellow Christian's lack of progress? opportunity to die how many of us and look this is where we got to get real honest okay how many of us saw these things as an invitation to connect with christ and to admit to the lord our own inability to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, and to love well. How many of us saw these things as open doors to ask Christ to take up permanent residence in in that particular room of our lives and to heal that particular darkness in us? The Apostle Paul says that if we're walking in such a way that the power of the risen Christ is flowing into and out of our lives, it's going to look like humility, it's going to look like gentleness, it's going to look like patience, and it's going to look like long-suffering love. And the primary place that those things are going to show up is in the local church, in the relationships we have with one another, and in the desire within our community to maintain the unity that we share in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there an eagerness in our midst to do that? Those who die to themselves have a desire to preserve the unity that belongs to us in Him. You see, true unity isn't a concern of self-centered people who demand their own way. True unity isn't a concern of harsh people who use threats and coercion to control others. True unity isn't a concern of narrow-souled people who have no time for stragglers, no time for the immature, no time for those beaten down by sin and suffering. We got things to do, people to see. We'll make sure to send somebody back for you. True unity isn't a concern of those who have no intention of putting up with people who think a bit differently than they do, who come at situations a bit differently than they do, who have particular personality quirks that they just have a hard time accepting. True unity, however, is a deep and genuine concern of those who desire to live in a way that fits with their calling. Paul makes that clear here. In fact, preserving and protecting the unity we share in Christ is to be of utmost concern if you and I are to walk in a worthy way as followers of Christ— In fact, right out of the gate as Paul moves from the lofty heights of the theology of the first three chapters and he begins to bring them down to earth, what is the first thing he writes about? Unity. Unity. You see, we've not only been united to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, We've also been united to one another. We are one. A point that Paul stresses in a deeply theological way in verses 4 through 6. You and I are to be protective of the unity that we share in Christ because, watch what he says. There is, now count these with me, one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul stresses over and over and over again in verses 4, 5, and 6 that you and I are to be eager to maintain the unity we have in Christ because undergirding our unity is a oneness that he comes at from a host of different Angles. In fact, the way that Paul structures these verses is an indication that he intends to ground our unity in the very character of God. The Holy Spirit is referenced in verse 4. The Lord Jesus is referenced in verse 5. And the Father is referenced in verse 6. In verse 4, there are three one descriptions surrounding the Spirit. In verse 5, there are three one descriptions surrounding Christ. In verse 6, there are three one descriptions referenced in relation to the Father. Three sets of three. Do you think Paul is pointing out the fact that though God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, God could not be more unified. We are told three things that relate to the Spirit, three things that relate to the Son, and three things that relate to the Father. All of these being a reference to the fullness of God, and the unity that we share in Christ through the Spirit and before the Father. So look, here's the deal. Why should we care about maintaining the unity we share in the Spirit? Because anything less than that reflects poorly on the nature and the character of God. Now look, I want to be clear, this doesn't mean unity at all costs. This is not unity that sacrifices truth, that tolerates false teaching, or blatant immorality. This unity has boundaries. And Paul mentions these in verses 4 to 6. That said, look, I want to be just straight up with you for a moment. Division in the body of Christ, and in local churches in particular, often has less to do with false teaching and or blatant immorality than it does unchecked egos, harshness that belittles and attempts to control, impatience that has no time for the slowly maturing, and a simple unwillingness to put up with one another. Humility, gentleness, patience, and long-suffering love. These things reflect the very heart of God, which you and I see most clearly in the attitude, the actions, the words, and the interactions of the Lord Jesus. Look, if Christ is at the center of our lives and if Christ is at the center of our church, then these things will slowly but surely characterize us too. As his spirit bears supernatural fruit in our lives, it is this fruit, the fruit of humility and gentleness and patience and love that will nourish the kind of unity that makes people look in on what God is doing here and say, how can I be part of that? Now, we started off this morning by... Talking about how this relationship we have with God through Christ is meant to have everyday implications for our lives. We're, We're meant to walk these things out, as Paul says. So, what's the first step? Do you remember two weeks ago when I preached through Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21 and I told you? We will come back to this because this is Paul's prescription for beginning to apply these things to our lives. Prayer. Prayer is the first place that you and I must go if we intend for these things to become a reality in us. Walking or living in a manner consistent with the calling of our lives begins as we draw near to Christ and we ask the Spirit to help us behold the humility. It begins as we draw near to Christ and we ask the Spirit to help us behold the patience of Christ toward us. It begins as we draw near to Christ and we ask the Spirit to help us behold the gentleness of Christ toward us. It begins as we draw near to Christ and we ask the Spirit to to help us behold the long-suffering love of Jesus for us. It begins, brothers and sisters, as we embrace the road to the cross and we own up to our self-centeredness, to our harshness, to our impatience with others and to our simple lack of love for one another. Our love for those God has placed around us who just get on our last nerve. It begins just as it did two weeks ago. Right here. It begins as we offer up these areas of brokenness to the Lord. And we ask Him to take up permanent, life changing residence in these areas of our hearts. As we ask Him to draw near to us and teach us deep down what it means to be humble, gentle, patient, and loving toward one another. So this morning, as the worship team comes, I want to ask you to embrace the weakness that we